Take your Bibles and turn over to Revelation chapter 12. Hey, guys. It's good to see you all again. Miss Cena. Revelation chapter 12. We're in the middle of the tribulation period, most likely at the halfway point, or maybe even a little bit after. And what happens at this point in Revelation is that there's somewhat of a pulling back of the curtain to look what's happening behind the scenes of the whole tribulation period. It's this gigantic cosmic battle that's taking place right on earth at this time in light of the fact that Satan has been cast down to earth. And what the revelation does and what John does and what God does to show John what has happened is he steps back and shows a panoramic view of all the events of the great battle between Satan and a woman and a child. And what you're going to see as we go along today that this great battle is already ongoing. It's a continuous battle that's going. But at the time in Revelation chapter 12, it will reach its peak. And the battle will rage at intensities that we can't even comprehend with our minds. As we unfold the coming chapters in Revelation, we're going to understand it better and better. How uh, huge and how powerful and how evil Satan is. And how glorious and how powerful and how righteous our God is. And so in chapter 12, we kind of step back. In the chapter 11, we saw in verse 15, notice that the seventh angel has sounded his trumpet, marking the change in kings. Notice it says in verse 15, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. This marks an announcement that the end has come. And it's all going to unfold in the next couple chapters, all the way up to Revelation 19. In Revelation 12, though, and 13 and 14, he backs up and shows what are the events that are happening and what, have, what has led up to this and what is happening behind the scenes. The King of Kings is going to reign on earth, but what is happening behind the scenes? We have in our passage today, again, a panoramic view of the cosmic battle between God's righteousness and Satan's evil. Let's read our passage, Revelation chapter 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child And she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, 
a male child, who is to rule all, uh, rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared before prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea. Because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing picture of a battle that's going on and a battle that will take place. Lord, we pray that you will help us to understand these words, to apply them to our lives, so that we may understand who you are, that you are the sovereign God of the universe who is in control of all things. Help us to trust you and obey you. We know you deserve it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So we are going to see a panoramic view here in our passage. Today we're going to answer three important imperative questions, or interpretive questions, rather, so that we can understand the passage better and then respond appropriately. Three important interpretive questions so that we can understand this passage and respond appropriately. The first question I want to answer from the passage and looking at the passage is who is the woman? Who is the woman in our passage? We see this throughout the passage. There's little clues as to who she is. 
Notice in verse 1 it says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. First I want you to notice that a woman is a representation of something. Notice it says, a great sign. A great sign. It's not a, a, a literal woman in the sense that we should take it to be one lady, like some the Roman Catholic Church say, it's Mary. But it's a great sign. She's a representative of someone or a people of God. We'll talk about that in a second. Notice also it says, She appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and her head, a crown on her head, a crown of twelve stars. Now, remember back in Revelation 7, look back there for a second. There is a distinction that is made between believers and Jewish believers during the tribulation period. It's already been clear. In Revelation chapter 7, he describes the 144,000 and makes a distinction between a multitude that follow God in verse 9. So there is a distinction between these believers. There's a distinction of Jewish believers during this time and Gentile believers. It's already been established in Revelation. Here's why I believe that this passage is not talking about the church. It's not a reference to the church. While the church is called the bride, at this point, those description of, of, of the church have never been used, ever. But it has described the people of Israel, the Jewish people, at one point. In a way, look with me back at Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. In Genesis chapter 37, we have one of my favorite characters in all the Bible, Joseph, having a dream. Now, I have to admit, I'm not quite sure the wisdom of Joseph announcing this dream to his brother, but brothers, but he did it. And in the providence of God, it's good because we have it nice and recorded here for us. But Joseph has a dream about his brothers coming and bowing down to him along with, remember, his mother and his father. And in the midst of that, we have this picture of a dream. Notice, now he had still another dream, verse 9 of 37, and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in his mind. Who would be... Just obvious here, looking at this, who would be the sun? His father, right? The moon, most likely his mother. Who are the eleven stars? His brothers. Who would be the twelfth star over in Revelation if we're looking at this as a picture? Joseph, the twelve tribes. Same thing that we see back in Revelation chapter 7. So, who is the woman? Most likely the woman is a reference, a representation of Israel. Israel. She was clothed with the sun. She had the moon under her feet, probably a reference to Rachel. And then on her head she had the twelve stars, including Joseph. She was 
pregnant with child. Look at it. This woman was pregnant with child. I think it's important for us to notice in verse 2, And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor, in pain, to give birth. So when is this? This is most likely before Jesus came. I would suggest to you that, um, and, and we'll get to this in a second, this obviously points that it's not the church again because the Messiah did not come out of, and we'll see this in a little bit, out of the church, did he? Did he come out of the church? No, he came out of Israel. He was the Messiah of the Jews. Now, are the benefits for the Gentiles? Absolutely. But here he's talking about this great cosmic battle, looking at the whole scene as a panoramic view. The woman is most likely Israel, and she's with child, which we'll talk about in a second, is most likely the Messiah. The church did not come from the church, or Christ did not come from the church. It came from Israel. There was also, notice it says, great labor pains before the child's birth. Israel is described all the way through the Old Testament as being a, as a, a nation or a woman in childbirth, in labor. Why? And anticipation of that Messiah. She's struggling, striving. Listen to these verses. Isaiah 13, you can look these up later. Isaiah 13, 8 says this. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will wreathe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Talking about Israel. Verse 20 in, in Isaiah 21 3. For this reason my loins are full of anguish. Pains have seized me like the pains of a woman in labor. I am so bewildered I cannot hear, so terrified I cannot see. Isaiah 26, 17. As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she wreathes and cries out in her labor pains. Thus we're we before you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We breathed in labor. We gave birth, as it seems, only to wind. We could not accomplish deliverance from the earth, nor were inhabitants of the world born. What's the point? It's talking about Israel and its anticipation of the Messiah to come wreathed with pain. You can see this. All you got to do is read the Old Testament, right? We do a, a nice look, a panoramic view of what the Jewish people went through before the Messiah came. It was horrible. And it's found again in Jeremiah chapter 4, Jeremiah 13, 21. The same idea of a woman in childbirth, Micah 4.10, Micah 5.3. I'm not going to go through all these, but you get the gist. This has got to be who? Israel. The woman's got to be Israel. And she is in labor, looking forward to the Messiah's come. The events in these final five verses, or these verses that I've mentioned, or in these verses here in Revelation 12, 1 through 5, are a reenactment of the events of Jesus' first coming. Israel's labored hard before he came. The pains of childbirth are intense, but they result in great reward. We see this. Look at verse 5. And she gave birth to a son, a male, male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. 
Notice one thing I want you to notice as we're going through this. Time is flying by in this panoramic view. I mean, this would be almost like uh, one of those, I'm trying to think of, one of those short cartoons we used to watch when we were a little kid. I mean, they were like a two-minute cartoon to explain everything and, and give you a panoramic view. That's what this is like. Just a short picture, panoramic view, movie of all the events unfolding. So we're skipping ahead in time, big time. Matter of fact, between chapter verse 5 and 6, there is a huge leap in time. But that's not the point. They're not trying to give all the details. It's like a quick overview of the cosmic battle that's, being take, uh, that's taking place between the woman, a child, and the dragon. So we get here in this case that there is a child that was to come out of this great pain. I find it interesting. This is a good side note for us to think on. Often pain, the pain of experiences that lead up to something, lead to a glorious reward. And this is what happens with the Messiah when he comes. Uh, just, to, just think on this for a second, and just for application purposes, folks. Um, in all the things in your life, I know several times, and, and we found this throughout in the Bible. Um, when the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, it says, For God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, right? Often we don't see the good, the reward, the, the, the joy in the midst of our circumstances. But just realize this. Just as, as Israel labored and toiled, there was a great reward that came out of it. And that is the Messiah came. The one came to save and pay for sin. So in this picture, this panoramic view, we're reminded once again that the pain of experiences as you walk with God often lead to great rewards, great joy. So hang in there. Keep going. This would be a message that they all needed to hear. All the churches needed to hear, right? Stay faithful. Despite your circumstances, because the reward is great. The Messiah came. There appears to be, like I mentioned, a time break between 5 and 6. But the woman is then further described in 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days. This looks at that time period that Mark's already alluded to in Daniel, the three and a half years. That's what that time works out to be. The last half of the great, the Daniel 70th week, which we'll talk about when we get to Daniel chapter 9. The, the idea here is this is the great tribulation, the last half of the tribulation period. So between 5 and 6, there are thousands of years. <laughs> but in 6, we have this picture, again, of this woman fleeing from the dragon and being protected. It's picked back up in verses 13 through 17, her idea of her fleeing. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time. Mark went over that, how times or time, times and half a time is three and a half years again. Time being singular, time, times being plural, two years, and half a time is a half a year. So it would be 
three and a half years. Same amount of time that's referred back in chapter in verse 6. Okay? From the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water out. Notice in verse 15. Like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away from with the flood. But the earth helped the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children. We have this picture here of the woman who is flees from this dragon. We'll talk about it in a little bit, who the dragon is. I'll give you a hint, Satan. <laughs> Israel flees to pursue, um, to get away from him, and is then pursued by the dragon. But God preserves her throughout this whole time. God is preserving the woman. It shows that God is faithful to his promises. You say, how is he faithful to his promises? By preserving this woman who is Israel. Answer, turn with me back to Genesis again. Chapter 17. Why do I stand on these things about God, there being a distinction between Israel and the church? Well, because I believe that God is a promise-keeping God. <laughs> Real simple. God keeps His promises. Let's look in Revelation or in Genesis chapter 17. In chapter 15, God has already made a covenant with Abraham. And in chapter 17, the covenant is reviewed and gone over again. And it's important for us to look. Notice that this covenant is reviewed with God. Notice. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, look, verse 4, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, uh, uh, exalted father of many, or father of multitude. For I have made your father, you the father of a multitude of nations. Keep going. Verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for a covenant until Jesus comes and the church takes over for Israel. doesn't say that. It says, for an everlasting covenant. Right? An everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your descendants, physical descendants, right? After you, I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, land, physical land, all the land of Canaan for a everlasting covenant. Just a little bit of time. A little bit of time. Possession. No, everlasting, forever. This is a promise by God to Abraham. Right? Everlasting 
possession, and I will be their God. That's a promise. Now, along comes the Messiah. Look over at Romans chapter 11 for a second. Along comes the Messiah, and the Messiah comes, and Gentiles are flocking to Christ. And there's this great rejection as a whole from the, from the Jewish people. So the natural question would be, okay, so this is just spiritualized, and God is only thinking of a spiritual people, not a nation. And if you read Romans chapter 9 all by itself and didn't read Romans chapter 11, you might begin to think that way only. But Romans chapter 11, look at it. Romans chapter 11, verse 25. God, through the Apostle Paul, speaks of promises he's made to Israel. He says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is, folks, this points to the reality that there is a partial hardening, but there is a time coming where Israel as a whole will be saved at a particular point. In Revelation chapter 7, or 12 rather, we are seeing a picture of that. Where God is preserving the woman, Israel, in the midst of this. Now who are they believing on? Who is Israel believing on during this time? Jesus. They're repenting of rejecting the Savior and trusting in Him. So here we have this picture of a people of God that are being protected by God. A glorious truth. God keeps his promises. That's encouraging to you, isn't it? If God says something, can we count on it? Yes. Boy, this is important for us that need to know that our sins are forgiven, right? <laughs> this is important for us that need to know that it's not based on our deeds that get us to heaven, right? I mean, think about it for a second. Just as Side application for us church members here. If you've genuinely repented and believed and trusted in Christ, do you need to know that your righteousness is based on you keeping it or on what Christ did? What Christ did. I go to heaven not based on me, but based on the righteousness of Christ, as he said in Romans chapter 5, right? And 4. Now why is that important? If God says it, I can count on it. The promises he made to Israel are kept. God keeps his promises and the promises he makes to you, genuine believer. You who have trusted in Christ, given your life to him, you are credited righteous by what Christ did. And you can count on that promise because he's a promise-keeping God. It is important to know that God's a promise-keeping God, right? Here we have it again. This is probably, again, the midpoint. Let's see, now my notes have gotten all mixed up. It always happens to you at least once in a while. All right. How did that happen? 
good. Maybe I just lost it completely. Ah, last page. Come back up here. So Israel it has a special place in God's heart. This is obviously throughout the Old Testament, and it's reviewed here. Let's look at the second question. Who's the dragon? Who's the dragon? Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadem. If we were translating this into sign language, she'd be going crazy at this point. <laughs> seven heads, seven heads, ten horns, and on his head, seven diadems. Put real simple, let's just boil it down. I don't know what every one of those mean. <laughs> I have searched and looked, and there's lots of speculation. I tell you, they sound a lot like some of the stuff that Mark's been talking about in Daniel chapter 7, doesn't it? If you've been here on Sunday nights, you've seen and talked about the nations, and they could be representatives, maybe the seven heads or the, are the seven kings that survive. He, he's the one behind those seven heads. I don't know. I'll tell you this, we know he's Satan, so let's leave it at that. How do I know that? Scripture tells us. Isn't that good? Look at verse 9. It tells us, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. We got it. So (laughs) we'll solve that. The dragon is Satan. We've got it. The great and the red might point to his... uh, murderous nature and his great authority and power and the dragon being a very fierce being the dragon having all of those heads and horns and might show more of his power and influence but ultimately we see also notice in verse 4 and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to earth now we know later on that's described his angels the dragon and his angels wage war So it's very likely that this is talking about the demons, the angels that fell with Satan. The dragon's tail sweeps them. Previously in chapter 9 of Revelation, we saw a star represented an angel. So it appears here it's the same way. He swept away. Satan directly was responsible for the fall of a third of the angels in heaven. Uh, Folks, this is startling to me. Um, I want you to just meditate on this for just a second. Satan was directly responsible for a third of the angels being swept away, taken away, falling. What were these angels doing before he swept them away? They were looking and beholding God in his full glory. They were seeing God in his full glory. Now think about that for a second. And somehow the deception of this evil being was enough to get people, or angels rather, that were seeing God in his full glory and to deceive them. Have you ever thought this phrase before? If I could just see God, then I would believe. Ever thought that before? If God would just show yourself, just show me yourself, then I'll believe. And I'll trust you and obey you. (laughs) No. Folks. These angels saw God. Were with God. 
And the deception of Satan was so great that he caused a third of them to reject God. I, I think there's a healthy, uh, a healthy fear of Satan that we should all understand. A healthy fear. Now that does not mean that you should walk around, oh God, he's here, he's there, oh no. No, because through Christ, through Christ, we are overwhelmingly conquerors. Right? However, he is evil. And he swept away a third of the angels. It's obvious that he is very deceptive. Would you not agree? And very powerful. But look, notice at verse 7. And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his, arch- and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. This is most likely, again, at the halfway point, roughly, of the tribulation. Whereas before, um, it appears that these demons and uh, Satan had uh, reign, or not reign, but were able to approach God in heaven. We know this to be true, by the way. Look back at Job chapter 1 for a second. Job chapter 1. In Job chapter 1, we see a picture of this. In verse 6. Chapter 1, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Then Satan answered and said to the Lord, or answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth, walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord in accusing, indicting way. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hand, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So you have this idea of Satan coming before God and then in a sense accusing one of God's own. And up at this point in Revelation chapter 12, it appears that at that time you have Satan accusing God. And still, I have a couple of laughs. Did I say something weird? No? Okay. Uh, you have people coming. You have Satan and his demons coming up to God and accusing the brethren. But to put this simple in this passage in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, though he's accusing, there will come a day when he becomes a loser. <laughs> Satan is a loser. How do I know? Well, because it says it. And they were not strong enough, and there was no place longer found for them in heaven. Look, folks, uh, the good news is, is that Satan is going to lose. He is the ultimate loser. His loss and his falling is shown before it even happens. It's determined. He's going to lose. He's going to be kicked out of heaven. And that will only be the first step on his way to hell. Now when he gets to earth for that three and a half years, how do you think he's going to be? 
He's been kicked out of the presence of God, kicked out of all of that, no longer around. God has said, your judgment is soon. The time is at hand. How do you think he's going to act? You think he's going to be angry? Oh, yes, he's going to be angry. He's going to be enraged. And who's he going to turn his anger towards? Those who follow the Messiah. The, the Jews that have been repent or have been reborn and repented and trusted him, he's going to go after them. That's what we have in verse chapter 13. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. The dragon's first stop on the way to hell is a banishment to earth. The dragon, though, notice, and just quickly, let's look at this some more. What is the dragon called? He's the serpent of old. We know that from Genesis chapter 3, right? The one that led to all of humanity falling into sin through Adam and Eve. And then the dragon is called the devil and Satan. The, the word devil literally means I slander or accuse. He's the accuser or I slander or blame or indict. And then Satan literally means adversary or constant enemy. That's who Satan is. The dragon is characterized by ongoing deception. Look at that, that little verse there. He deceives the whole world. This is describing his work even before his banishment. That he is ongoing, constantly deceiving. Thomas called it, said this about Satan. It is his chief aim and occupation to deceive the world. Now folks, just a side note here. Uh, when we think about Satan and we read this, a dragon, a red dragon, a fierce one, enraged, we think of the Sith on Star Wars or something. Or Darth Vader, right? Some bad, bad person, right? The, the most evil being you can think of, right? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I want to warn you. He's deceptive. He doesn't, he doesn't come out and wear a pitchfork and red horns and say, this is how I look. You know, I'm the evil man. You know, it doesn't work that way. He disguises himself. He's deceptive. That's what he's all about. The whole world at this point is being deceived by Satan. They're embracing the Antichrist, as we will see, and yet the Antichrist is the one that's completely led by Satan himself. How does the world follow? How do a third of the angels follow a being unless that being is very deceptive? It's important for you to understand that. The dragon also is the accuser of the brethren. All of us have probably, to a degree, uh, um, experienced accusations from people false accusations from people where people indicted you of something that you didn't do or maybe you did do it but you had repented and trusted in Christ and been forgiven and yet you still are indicted for it that's what Satan's job is he's the deceiver that accuses the brethren before God 
This one's no good. This one's a sinner. This one, oh, I saw him how he treated his son. Oh, I saw him what he was doing the other night with those drugs. Oh, I saw him a couple years back with what he did. He's the accuser of the brethren. This is his, he's evil. So what he wants to do with us believers is take us and go squash. Make us feel like, no, I'm not going to trust in the righteousness of Christ. I know it's based on my deeds and I'm no good. I can't do this. Let me run. Or he's going to get behind evil ones, evil men and ladies, and make them look glorious, powerful, beautiful. And the world will look and they will say, oh, I like that person. Oh, that person. You'll have people bowing down to them, maybe. Screaming when they're performing, maybe. Standing in lines to see them, just to hear their words. Satan's behind the people that don't love Christ. And he squashes those that love Christ. That's what he's about. We see it here. So who overcomes them? Who overcomes them? That's the last question. Who can't overcame the dragon? Well, there's four groups here, briefly. The first one that overcame him is in verse 5. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is the ruler, is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Who's that? That's Jesus. He's the first overcomer. He's the one that overcame he is the one that rules and reigns. This is obviously a reference to him ruling and reigning in the future over the nations. And then he's caught up. He was caught up to God and to his throne. What is that? That's obviously a reference to his ascension when he went up to God. After his death, burial, and resurrection, he then ascended into heaven. Caught up. And he took his seat on the throne. Who is the overcomer? Jesus is the overcomer. He's the first overcomer. Jesus was the one. His resurrection confirmed it. His ascension confirmed it, that he was victorious over Satan. And he, his rule over the nations confirms it, that he is the overcomer. Notice also Michael and his archangels overcome him. In verse 7, And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels waging war, and they were not strong enough. Talking about the dragon and his angels. Michael appears to be one of the highest ranking angels, and Michael has an army. I like that name, Michael. Has an army of angels behind him. Michael and his, his army were stronger than them, and Satan was kicked out of heaven. That only enrages Satan more, right? And then who else? Look, the woman. In verses 13 through 16, we read it already. God first provides special deliverance, giving them wings, some way to escape, giving the woman a way to escape. And then second foils Satan's plot when he some kind of water comes out of his mouth. Maybe this is a literal flood that he sends to that area, and the ground opens up. That's possible. Maybe it could be symbolic, but the reality is this, because this whole area is very symbolic. God preserves the woman. So just a side note here. Look at this. Listen, you aren't Jesus. You're not going to overcome him by yourself. 
You're more like the woman. You need Christ. You need God to preserve you and protect you from Him. And by Christ and by what He's done, they are protected. But notice, even after this time, Satan's still enraged even more. And what does he do? He goes after more of those believers. I want you to know, and I want you to get this. Look at verse 17, and there's great application here for us. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God, that is, those who have been born again and therefore obey God and hold to the testimony of Jesus and hold to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those people Satan hates. And at this point in history, this panoramic view, he will be enraged and he will go after them. I just want to give you a side note. This isn't a new concept for Satan when that happens in the future. He wants you, ladies and gentlemen. He hates you, ladies and gentlemen. If you believe in Jesus Christ and you keep His commandments and He is number one in your life, He is coming after you too. Why am I worrying you? I'm not. I'm warning you. Listen. Watch what you watch on television. Avoid it. Be careful of false teachers. Please, folks. Watch what you're putting into your minds. Where are you getting your information? Is it just the Bible? I'm afraid. Are you just like me? The tendency is to slide into getting information from everywhere. Radio, internet, TV. Information bombarding you. You can go back to school soon, some of you. Information bombarding you. Satan hates you. If you love Christ, he hates you. Be on guard. This is just emblematic of his nature. Remember Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll close with that. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore. Having girded your loins with truth, Know the truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, God's Christ's righteousness, and having shod your feet in the preparation of the gospel of peace, your doing and your way being all about the gospel. And in addition to all, 
taking up the shield of faith, trust in God alone with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation that you have been declared right and are being sanctified and will be glorified and the sword of the Spirit which is the Word of God the Word of God with all prayer and petition pray at all times in the Spirit and with this in view be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. This is a beautiful picture, right? Folks, you got to go to what you know to be true. It's Christ, His truth. I've been reminded just recently of how, how much lies come into our minds. <coughs> They may come from other people. Our sin nature has a tendency to come up with these lies. Our old man and Satan and his demonic forces. I'm telling you, they're everywhere, folks. They're these kind of statements. I don't think I don't think that lady over there likes me. I don't think she really likes me. Oh, oh, that guy. I know. I know what he thinks of me. It's those little lies that are creeping in everywhere. And they will destroy our church too. Satan hates this church. He hates it. He's putting lies in your mind. Maybe not him directly, but his forces can. And our sin nature has a tendency to come up with them because they've been trained so well over the years before. Take those thoughts captive, folks, to the obedience of Christ. Know and think on what is true. Know and think on Christ, the one who is victorious. And don't succumb to the loser. Don't listen to the lies. Follow Christ. Trust his word. He is victorious, and He is our King. Let's pray. Oh, Father, You are good to us that You have provided Your Son. Thank You that You are victorious over Satan. No matter what he does, even if it means death for us, it doesn't matter because we have Christ, and we're in glory with You forever. God, we will follow you by your grace. We know that Christ is better. And so we refuse to hear the lies of Satan. We refuse, Lord, to submit to the lies of pornography and the evilness of the world. And all those wicked things that are out there. God, we will not follow a loser. By your grace, we will follow you. You are Lord and Master. We pray this in Christ's name.